Ladies and gents, welcome back to another Engineers podcast. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Nick Peddy, who's the CTO of an organization called Clear, who, for some of our US followers, they should know the business. And Nick's going to be talking to us today a little bit about the service itself, the evolution of the product over the last few years, especially since COVID, but also the technology evolution that's come with that and how some of the culture has actually shifted internally for the better for the business. Nick, welcome from the US. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Pleasure. Do you want to introduce yourself and give us a bit of an insight into Clear for everyone listening? Absolutely. My name is Nick Petty. I'm the CTO for Clear, as Elliot said. Um, I uh, am responsible for all the technology at Clear, which is really interesting because we have both a physical and digital presence. So for those of us who may not know Clear in the uh, airports, uh, that's where we primarily operate. Um, and we operate a, a biometric identity platform that allows our members to um, go through all the airport security line much faster, right? So using biometrics, you can identify yourself much quicker um, and get to that security checkpoint much faster. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, business because we have both a um, sort of a security identity and privacy um, beholding to our members, but also because we operate in airports. Um, with the TSA in the U.S. that operates the security checkpoints. Um, we also operate as part of their registered traveler program. So we have sort of a regulatory compliance aspect of our business as well. Nice. Awesome. Give us a bit of an insight into your background, Nick. You've worked with some unbelievable businesses and risen through some of those ranks and you know, over the last few years joined Clear. But give us a bit of an insight into pre-Clear. Yeah, thank you. Yes, um, I often sort of joke with my teams that it's only been the last few years of my career that I've sort of emotionally accepted the idea that I'm not a developer anymore. That's, that's where I started, right, in my career. Um, and in my head, in my heart, in my heart, Elliot, I'm still very much a developer. I still code on the weekends. Yeah, I like bet. That, but I haven't, I haven't uh, coded for a paycheck in quite some time. And it, every time I think about that, it makes me a little sad. Uh, <laughs> um, so I started my career as a developer. Um, actually, I'll even, I'll even go further back than that just for the sake of storytelling um, and say that I started when I was about eight years old. Uh, I won't go all the way through my childhood, but uh, but that's kind of when I got going. Um, wow. And and I I used to say I used to think um, that you know folks of of my age and generation that's where we all kind of started as tinkerers, right? Somebody's parent or friend had a you know computer they got and somebody started playing with it and said, oh, what's this basic thing or what's this you know pearl thing or whatever, and they kind of got hooked on it and then boom, that was it. They took off. These days, I'm actually really happy to say that's not like a very common background. A lot of people sort of choose to make that career later in life or can go through other sort of schooling or experiences. Uh, but that was my that was my start. My dad had an Osborne computer that ran CPM. Um, that's going to date me for anybody who knows what that is. <laughs> but those are ancient. Imagine, imagine the first laptop, but it weighed about 50 pounds. It was about the size of a luggage. And like the top of the luggage would flip off to be a keyboard. And then that was like your four inch screen, right? That was like the first portable computer. And so that's, that's what got me hooked. Um, so by the time I got to university, you know, so I'll, I mean, that was before internet. So that was like, I was I was dialing the bulletin boards. I was probably doing a few things you weren't supposed to do. I was, you know, I was, I was learning, right? I was exploring the early proto-internet. I remember I had a, a high school class where they had access to um, some servers through, oh gosh, I can't remember which, which lab, it was, like a, it was like a laboratory in the US. Like it was an academic research laboratory. We had a partnership. So they got us like early access to like the pre-internet internet. Nice. Um, and I started exploring that. And so by the time, my point is that by the time I got to university, it was sort of predestined, right? 
Um, and, uh, and then I was immediately disappointed, I gotta say. <laughs> um, not because, I mean, I, I'll just say this, like I, I did not love my university experience, um, which I know is maybe a non-traditional uh, path for a lot of folks. Um, but, you know, my parents didn't have a ton of money. Um, and so I was putting myself through school. I was taking out loans. I was working jobs. I was trying to get through school. Um, and, you know, and it's not to say that I'm, I'm so smart or I'm so whatever, but like a lot of the early classes I was taking were things that were very like rote for me, uh, cause I'd already been doing it for a good chunk of my life. Uh, I was sort of, I was sort of waiting to get to the good parts. Right. And it's like years in, I was racking up student debt and hadn't gotten to the good parts yet. And this is right about the time the dot-com boom was happening. And I realized, what am I, what am I doing, man? <laughs> this is stupid. Yeah. So I dropped out and that's what started my career. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was walking out of Soda Hall at UC Berkeley, go Bears, um, on my last day of school. Um, and there was like a bulletin board on the wall, right? Um, said, it literally said tech guy wanted. That's all it said, tech guy wanted. Um, and it had those little you know, numbers that you would tear off, right? Um, nobody had teared any off. So I put the whole thing in my pocket. I grabbed it off the board, put it in my pocket, went home, called the number. Um, and the, the guy sent me to a place for an interview that Friday. It was a bar. So I showed up at this bar for this guy for this interview, right? Um, and he gave me a, you know, a pretty half-assed uh, interview over, over a pint of beer. Um, and then towards the end, he's like, well, you know, Visual Basic? I was like, sure. Of course, I had no, I hadn't even touched it. But I was like, sure, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, and he's like, okay, okay, well, you know, nobody's called me for the job. I have no idea what that would be. Um, yeah. And he's like, so, yeah, so, so you're it. Come to work on Monday. I was like, great. Um, so I walked from the bar to the Barnes & Noble. Again, I'm dating myself because those don't exist anymore. But I walked to, a, for those of you who don't remember, there used to be bookstores. I walked to a bookstore, bought a book on Visual Basic, read it over the weekend, and then went to work on Monday. That was my, that's how I got started in my career. Love that. And then the steps from there, I would, I would not, I'm not going to go through every single one, but like I, I would sort of consider it a uh, sort of cavalcade of sort of Forrest Gump-like steps where I sort of just lucked my way and accidentally walked, you know, through best intentions and just trying really hard, got to like sort of really awesome experiences. One of those companies I worked for got acquired by Amazon. I worked there for a long time, you know, learned a lot there. That was pre-AWS Amazon. So that was, you know, that was still books, music, video, Amazon. That was, that was early wow. days. It was really interesting. Learned a lot there. Um, went on to PayPal, did eight years there um, and learned a lot there as well. Eight years, uh, the eighth year of PayPal is actually where I made the transition into leadership. So at that point, I was sort of getting to more senior development. Um, at, at PayPal, they had the title of architect. Um, and I just thought that was a really sexy title. I thought the, the guys that had that title were so cool and doing really interesting stuff. Shout out to uh, Josh Walker, Mike McCartney, and, and uh, Chris McGraw, uh, who were early architects. I thought were the coolest guys ever. They were, they were mentors of mine. Um, Love that. And, uh, and once I, but once I got there, of course, I realized, oh, it's just PowerPoints and meetings. I don't keep code anymore. So that kind of sucked. Uh, <laughs> but, but what it did do, Elliot, is it gave me an opportunity to see what the impact of leadership could have. At that mm -hmm. point, up until that point in my career, and I suspect a lot of IC, individual contributors, engineers feel this way of like, I don't want to deal with people. I, I like code. That's very, I understand code. I don't understand people, right? I don't want to take responsibility for other, other things. I can, I can take responsibility for my own code because I know how it works, right? I think it's a lot of people's impulse or sort of, you know, reservation. Um, and that was certainly mine. But I had been put in a position where I was, I was as a senior architect, leading very, a very large project to basically retool all of the sort of core platform of PayPal. Um, and it was a very, I was a, I don't know, hundreds of engineers that I was leading indirectly through this project, right? Um, and I kind of started to see where, oh, if I like do this thing right, or I make this right decision, or I sort of, you know, plant this right seed in this right engineer's head, the impact that can have is actually quite a bit more outsized than I can have individually. And that's when it kind of started to click because at the same time, I started to understand about myself and my career. Where did I want to be? Where was I going? Um, that what I really cared about was impact. 
What I really care about is working on things that matter. Now, I don't have to be, you know, curing cancer or whatever, but, you know, it needs to be something of, of value of, of meaning to customers. Um, and that's where I want to work. And so I've always looked for where can I have the most impact, whether it's, you know, an organization, people's careers, product we're building, you know, innovation, whatever that may be, I want to have the most impact. Um, and so once I kind of understood, oh, okay, crap, if I do leadership well, I, actually, that's where I have the most impact. Okay, I guess I have to go learn that skill now. That's kind of, I took an intentional direction to then start doing that. And then from that, from my career from PayPal onwards was a series of very intentional steps on my part, looking to develop my leadership abilities at sort of larger and larger scopes. Starting with a very small startup, I built a small team from scratch, um, then moved on to a sort of later stage startup, took on a bigger team. Now I had sort of multiple teams, multiple geographies. Um, yeah, and then went to a sort of a much larger, um, you know, public company, a bank in this case, Capital One. Um, and I was taking on sort of more divisional CPO um, sort of type responsibilities, so on and so forth, um, until I made my way to Clear. Um, and, and Clear was just an amazing opportunity to jump on. Um, and this will get into a little bit about sort of how the business has evolved. Um, but, uh, you know, when I looked at what they built in the airports and where they were going uh, post-pandemic, I thought to myself, oh, my God, I, I have to. This is the once in a lifetime opportunity I have to jump on this. Yeah, it, it's quite an unbelievable transition since the pandemic, which I'll let you talk through and talk through a little bit about the product change. Uh, but I love the. I love the journey into becoming an architect, um, not necessarily by accident, but actually finding that love for. Uh, managing people or yep. coaching people, whether that be directly, indirectly, and then obviously rising through the ranks and having that impact on other people. Uh, I think that's pretty awesome. You know, some people have that deliberate path in their mind of, I want to take this route into leadership and have that natural progression, but it doesn't feel that way. You, you know, you're technically minded i can see that from obviously picking things up at eight years old and i'm running with it and finding your way into an architect role at paypal and then into leadership good for you <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily draw that straight line that way but sure, but sure yeah yeah, um, yeah. And, you know and, and i was lucky elliot to, to have some really great mentors early on i remember one time actually my that early stage startup i mentioned um i was the head of engineering reporting to the cto um, shout out to Matthew Menjeric, another good friend and mentor of mine. Um, and we were having a sort of walk and talk. Where do you want to be in 10 years kind of, um, you know, talk, conversations. And I was like, well, I want your job, man. I want to be CTO. He's like, great. Like, what do you think a CTO does? And so I started, you know, what well, CTO does this and this and this, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he listens and he nods and he goes, yeah, nope, that's all wrong. And I was like, well, wait a minute. What are you talking about, Matthew? Like, I'm, I'm an experienced operator. I know what a CTO does. Right. He's like, no, no, no. Listen, you know, if, if you're doing your job correctly as CTO, it's really two things. Full stop. One, you set the vision for what you need your team to do. And two, you make sure you have the right people to do it. Boom. That's it. That's the whole job. Right. Now, obviously, that's kind of a, a North Star, right? That's like a, like a, like a, um, an, an ideal that you shoot for. It's like 100% site reliability. Nobody ever achieves that. But you're always shooting for it in terms of like how many nines of, of reliability can you get. Right. So I never perfectly achieved just those two things. But anytime I'm not doing one of those two things, it's a signal to me, oh, I, I need to delegate something or I need to change an organizational thing or I need to do something differently, right? And it's been a really good guiding North Star for me to be able to understand where my maximum leverage and impact is as a CTO and then sort of leverage that through the organization I'm working for. Yeah, and that's actually quite nice, CTO simplified, really, those two things, mm -hmm. because you can overcomplicate it with 
maybe your version of five, 10 different things. But yep. actually, when you nail it down to these two things, everything else will come with it, as in the steps before that, that you probably rattled off. Yep. But those two <laughs> things are key. Exactly. And if you pull that thread just a little bit further, you start to realize, oh, actually, that same um, sort of ideal matters at all levels of leadership, right? So whether you're a frontline manager or you know, a CIO of a global company, yeah. what I kind of came to realize is actually those two things the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Talk to us about this once in a lifetime opportunity, joining Clear at exactly the right time then. And talk to us about Clear today and the product that it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so for those in the U.S. who have seen Clear um, and everybody, everybody in the U.S. who has a Clear membership has a very similar story. Oh, my God, I was about to miss my flight. The line was long. And then I saw clear, like a shining beacon in the, in the distance, right? I ran to it. Um, they were so pleasant. They were so, uh, you know, so helpful. Um, I signed up really quickly and then boom, I was right to security line and I made my flight. Every single clear member has a story like that, right? And that's kind of the thing, right? So, so the idea is that you, you pay a membership fee, an annual membership fee, I believe it's 189 a month right now. It can be, you know, you can subsidize if you have loads of programs with various of our partner air, airlines. Um, you know, we have a great deal with the uh, American Express people. Um, but, uh, but you basically you sign up for a membership and then um, you register your biometrics with us, um, either your iris or your fingerprints or both. Um, and then leveraging those biometrics, um, you're then able to sort of just go straight through the security line um, and straight up to the security checkpoint. Um, it's a great product. People love it. Um, we have uh, an incredibly, uh, incredibly great member base, um, really high retention rates, really high MPS because our amazing ambassadors, that's our, our folks in the field who man the lanes and help our customers. Um, they're incredible, right? And so we have this great airport experience. And this has been the case since uh, about 2010 uh, when the founders sort of bought the original company out of bankruptcy and they started to grow it into what it is today. Um, and so that's been the story for quite some time. Um, and we're in 50 some odd airports now. Um, wow. You know, this year we've, we've, we've um, opened several more. Um, and so we're growing like crazy. Um, but then the pivot that happened was really at the pandemic, right? And, you know, if you look back even to the original sort of 2010 filings um, with the investors on the, on the board, this vision actually was there. Um, but it took a while to sort of realize I think the pandemic was a catalyst to accelerate it. Um, and what that meant was that basically simultaneously two things happened. One was travel dropped almost zero. Um, at the same time, there was this new need that came sort of very quickly on its tails, which was the, the COVID vaccine management, right? And so that allowed um, the, uh, the, the folks at Clear, this is a little bit before I joined, right? Right before I joined. Um, they pivoted very quickly to generate what's called the health pass product, uh, which leverages the same notion of an identity, a persistent identity, but now it's sort of very specifically for the vaccine. Um, and that became a very successful product very quickly because people had that. There's nothing existed before. And if you recall back a few years ago, a bunch of different companies and sort of organizations were scrambling to sort of build, you know, wallets and sort of ways of sort of confirming your vaccine in a digital way. Right. Um, and Clear was one of those that was really successful. Um, so on the back of that, then um, they started to build out what we now sort of refer to as our, as our uh, sort of powered by Clear platform or sort of our, the commercial side of our house versus the sort of airport or federal side of the house. Um, and, and so if you take a step back from what it means to have a biometric identity platform that's leveraging people's uh, identities to get through an airport checkpoint. If you sort of take a step back and abstract that a little bit, you actually start to realize that, oh, this notion of authenticating somebody's identity and then authorizing some sort of, um, you know, ability or, or permissioning um, in a persistent network way, actually, wow, that can be applied to almost anything, right? Almost any place where you would need to pull something out of your wallet to show proof of identity or proof of, you know, credential of some kind. Um, if we attach that to a biometric in some very secure, uh, you know, reliable way, 
Um, that's super useful, right? So um, that led to then building out this this whole other platform based on the same technology, but sort of separate from from the airport business. Um, yeah. And now that's something that we're really starting to uh, get some really awesome traction on. So you can see that in places like um, one of our first partners was Avis, awesome folks at Avis. Um, so now. Uh, if you use their app to rent the car, for example, um, our our uh, biometric product is built into their app. Um, rather than going into the line and waiting at the counter to get your keys and blah, 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 you just scan your face. Yep, that's you, Elliot. Your car's a C3. Go get it. Um, so yes. super convenient, super secure, awesome. Um, you can also do, experience that at, at so certain sports stadiums. So like you're going to visit Las Vegas Raiders Stadium in Nevada. Um, you can buy a beer using our product, for example, to prove, the, to prove your age. Um, and most recently, really exciting is actually our partnership with LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, LinkedIn really wants to be a similar uh, platform of, of sort of trust and safety and security. You want, you want to be able to know that you're interacting with professionals that um, are who they say they are, right? Um, and that's been sort of prob problematic for them as they've scaled and grown. And so they partnered with us to, um, add that identity proofing to their profile. So now actually anybody can go onto the LinkedIn profile um, and on your profile, you'll see an opportunity to verify your identity with clear. And then you get a little check mark that's your identity says, yep, that's that's really Elliot, we proved it. Um, and so that tra notion of traction of, of leveraging all different ways that, that um, you know, what makes you you can then be used as different digital experiences um, is kind of the way we're focused now. And, and it's an exciting new opportunity for us. There's a couple of really interesting things that I, I think the pivot is incredibly smart it makes sense obviously there's so many different use cases that we can just talk about quite quickly where clear can actually be applied to but you know when you're faced with the stark reality of we need a verification or authentication service how can we leverage our technology i think the business did that quite smartly but you and i have been speaking anyway and trust and safety is ingrained in your culture and has been for such a long time that you can see why whether it's the raiders whether it's linkedin so be it alcohol be it a social media or business platform you can apply this everywhere and you can protect your members i exactly think it's awesome right. yeah no exactly right and you, you hit it right trust and safety is the thing right so what i commonly remind people of is biometrics is cool and that's definitely a, a platform that leverage very heavily um, and I, I love learning about it because I, I was a novice coming in and learned a lot since. Um, but biometrics is not the thing, right? If biometrics went away tomorrow and was supplanted by some more superior form of identification, we would use that instead, right? Yeah. What's the thing is our, is our trust and our, our security and our privacy policy, right? So, for example, one of the really important sort of tenets that we hold core to our products is we do not share any information about our members unless there's explicit consent, explicit consent, right? And so there's literally no way for us to share information with anybody unless there's a, at one point the member says, yep, I agree to share these specific fields. And then the member, of course, can revoke that, that sharing at any point in time as well, right? That's the thing that, make, that makes it matter. That leads to interesting challenges as well, right? So as you start to bring a commercial platform to life and you work with partners like LinkedIn or Apes or whatever, um, you know, eventually those partners are going to start to ask for data. They want to know who's who's verifying, you know, they want to know sort of cohorts, they want to understand sort of demographics, right? Um, and there are certainly, there are some things that we can share safely, but some of those things start to touch on, gosh, the member didn't consent to share the state. Even if it's an aggregated anonymous form, they still didn't consent to it, so we, we can't do it, right? Um, and yeah. so navigating that and sort of being on the side of our member and being on the side of trust and safety, um, I think is core to our, our platform, but it does make for some really interesting product engineering challenges. Yeah, I bet. Can we explore those? Because offline, we've spoken about yeah. fast machine learning, site reliability, 
We've spoken about the evolution of the architecture. Can you just break down for us what it actually takes to go and build something as fast and frictionless as clear? Absolutely. So I think it comes down to a few different things. And, and the first thing you need to understand about a product like this, um, and this is what differs from, say, maybe a more traditional e-commerce flow, which I think people are more grounded in, right? So in an e-commerce flow, you're always trying to get the maximum number of people through that flow as possible. 100% conversion e-commerce would be your ideal, right? Obviously, right? 100% conversion in an identity proofing flow is worthless, right? Because you're not proofing anything at that point, right? So some measure of people should not pass through. Obviously, you want that to be a high percentage of conversion, generally speaking, because you want to allow the good actions to go through as, as with the highest success rate as possible. So we don't really talk about conversion in those scenarios. We talk about things like false negative rate, false positive rates. Right, because those are things we want to try to control for, right? And so, a lot of the underlying technology that comes to bringing life, and this is both in the airport business as well as in the in the commercial business, is really about controlling for those those factors, right? So, it's about finding um, the right balance of UX, um, the right underlying sort of algorithmic implementations um, with the right thresholds and tuning. We do a lot of sort of internal testing, whether it be um, you know testing with different kinds of ID proofing, testing with different kinds of faces, doing bias checks, right? All kinds of trying to make sure that we're sort of maximizing that possibility. Um, and, then, and then the last bit is really, um, you know, whatever additional um, abilities that the identity proofing wants. So for example, um, you know, our flow commonly refers to, re uh, requires uh, what we call passive liveness, right? So when you're doing a facial verification check, um, you know, one of, the, one of the common sort of basic ways you could defeat that is sounds goofy, but it's true. Like you could put a mask on or you could like print out a picture and put it up in front of the camera. Right. Um, and so most algorithms, um, you know, including ours, um, have very effective heuristics for detecting that and defeating it. Right. So it's virtually impossible to do that sort of thing. Right. Um, but a more sophisticated technical attacker, for example, could, if they had control of the device that they're doing the facial scan on, so for example, your mobile phone, it's your mobile phone, right? Then you could theoretically, if you're more technically sophisticated, inject um, maybe pre-recorded video or a pre-taken photo, right? And that could potentially defeat that liveness, right? And so in those cases, we would add an additional uh, layer of check, what we call active or strong liveness, right? And you can see that experience in our LinkedIn flow, um, and it'll, it'll be marked by a, a place where... Um, uh, you'll see some swirling colors, right? And the swirling colors are sort of uh, not getting too far into the technical aspects of it, but um, but it's basically sort of generating a, a, a random but um, sort of specific pattern that can't be duplicated. Um, and then it's measuring that light passing off of your face back into the camera to make sure it sort of matches, right? Um, right. And so that basically defeats any ability to sort of pre-record anything, right? So again, so th these different measures can be added into our flow or or removed if you want to make it make it easier potentially, right? And again, that goes back to that point of like. What level of conversion and what level of false negative false positive rate are you are you caring about, and to what degree do you want to see friction or not friction? So in some cases you want friction in the experience. In some cases you want to try to reduce that friction. And so that's those are all sort of the different levers and balancing acts we have to play with to bring that product to life. It's insane, really, isn't it? it it's, is a, it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a I, every day I think like Matt, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe this is the technology I get to play with. This is so cool. Um, because it's cutting edge in some cases. Um, it actually, I'll, I'll say this, two things. It's, it's a kind of dichotomy because on the one hand, it's, it, in many cases, it's not cutting edge at all. And in many cases, it's very commodified. It's very road, very off the shelf, very common standard. And then occasionally yeah. we touch on things that are very cutting edge and very, oh my God, like nobody else is really doing this. Um, yeah. And we're kind of learning things for the first time. It's, uh, yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, I think especially the LinkedIn example, that's something that I haven't seen before. I've obviously gone through 
KYC and mm-hmm. authentication stuff, especially in fintechs. But I haven't seen something like that. Maybe I haven't gone through an authentication service recently to actually see that. But uh, well, that's you, you'll see that some some social networks are um, are attempting to do this in different ways that are you know I'll just say maybe less effective, right? You know, in, in some cases, for example, your identity proofing is really just that you gave a credit card, right? Yeah. Um, but I think LinkedIn really wants to be the the platform of trust and safety. Uh, they they they, the, yeah. they understand as well as we do that credibility and, and reputation matters. Um, but the the that's what's going all the way back to your original question, Elliot. Like you know, when I took the opportunity to clear to be CTO, like. That's what I kind of saw, and that's why I pulled in my mind. I pulled that thread to its logical conclusion and realized, oh my gosh, this is the right thing at the right time. You know, sure. um, it, it's in the zeitgeist. Whether it's uh, you know what's happening with Twitter right now, whether it's you know various uh, uh, things we've seen the last year. Um, I think Ticketmaster had a challenge with a you know Taylor Swift concert not too long ago. Those sort of being slammed by bots. Imagine if they could. Um, you know, have identity proofing as part of the, the ticket purchasing experience, right? Uh, you know, suddenly the need for this is is huge um, and uh, we're right there to do it. Yeah, and I think, uh, and we've spoken about this a lot recently on the podcast, the sophistication around some of the security threats mm. in today's day and age that we're seeing really accelerate recently is becoming a challenge for a lot yep. of businesses that they don't know how to handle. And I, th- I think AI definitely with facial recognition or facial detection, there's a problem. There, there yep. is a problem here and a service like Clear is really needed to weed some of that out. I, I think the thing that I love is what's really ingrained in the business, like I said, is the trust and safety part, but actually connecting the biometrics all the way through to a really good UX and everything in between, between delivering a really high uptime service, it must be really tough. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, um, but, you know, that's where anchoring on impact really matters to me, right? Because when I know that it's impactful, like you said, it's something that's useful, it's something that's valuable, it's something that's needed, right? Um, in, in society, I mean, you, you mentioned AI, for example, right? So, you know, most attacks, most, most uh, you know, breaches, if you will, most things like of that nature, these days, most of them actually start from things like social engineering, from people clicking the wrong link, from, you know, somebody, you know, stumbling into malware, right? It's, it's almost never the dramatic hacking or whatever that you see on movies. It's almost always a, a well-meaning human making a simple mistake that leads to somebody getting access to something, right? Um, and so that's all the more reason why that identity proofing becomes, you know, super important. Um, and so, you know, yes, yes, it's a lot of work. Um, and yes, you know, we have um, both a, a really important partnership with the TSA and our airports, and that's a lot of work to sort of maintain security for travelers, um, as well as for the commercial side of housing as our partners start to expand and sort of the different use cases expand. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities there. Another one where that that safety um, and that uh, that challenge is, is huge is in healthcare. That's another area where we're focusing a lot as we think about the opportunities for identity. Um, yeah. You know, and that presents its own set of compliance challenges and security and sort of safety and trust needs as well. Um, and yeah. so they really just compound. But um, you know, that goes back to maybe another topic we can get on, which is sort of how we've evolved the engineering culture and capabilities yeah. in clear over the last couple of years. Because you know, it's it's been a really awesome sort of, I would call level up story of coming from this sort of airport based startup um, and then having gone public in the last few years and having really sort of built out the second line of business to really starting to mature our engineering processes because we have both the constraints of 
needing to keep a you know a, a, a regulated wall between the two lines of business, but also to sort of leverage um, that underlying biometric and security technology um, in a way that's super secure, and reliable, um, and sort of having that sort of support both business simultaneously um, is uh, you know it requires a steady hand. Let's call it that. Would you be able to talk to us about that and and talk yeah. to us about some of the engineering practices and processes that maybe even you've had to introduce or yeah, you have yeah, to no. have in the business? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it, hopefully it'll be something that's actually kind of familiar to a lot of your listeners, because I would call it sort of a very um, straightforward level up from being a startup to then becoming a public company. And that's sort of everything that goes with that, right? Um, so nothing, I wouldn't say there's anything novel that we've sort of approached, um, but it's, yeah. it's sort of basic engineering culture um, and, and process. So for example, um, you know, when I joined, uh, the company was just sort of at the maturity level where um, we were starting to introduce things like OKRs, right? And KPIs that were sort of meaningful. Um, and, you know, like, like most companies, and again, this, I think this is a very common story. The first time you do AKRs, it's like terrible, right? You, don't, you totally don't get it right. You, you, you sort of totally miss the point entirely. And then you evolve it a couple of times and you get to a place where you feel really good about it. And I think that's where we are now, which is awesome. Um, but it starts with simple things like I, for engineering, for example, I started us with uh, Dora metrics as our, as our sort of starting OKRs, um, just to sort of baseline it because that's an industry standard. It's, I, I, I don't think the Dora metrics are sort of the end all be all necessarily of engineering efficacy, but what I like about them is they create a really useful balance to sort of really okay. think about what a properly forming engineering organization should be like, right? So Dora has four key metrics. Those who aren't familiar, there's four key metrics, right? There's lead time to change, there's change failure rate, there's deployment frequency, um, and there's mean time to detect incidents, right? And if you think about <laughs> those four, so you might go, why those four specifically, right? And there's a, if you go to the Dora um, you know, website, there's a whole explanation for their methodology and science. But what it really comes down to is if you think about those four, if you pull any one of them out, you start to realize, oh, actually, then you sort of incentivize the wrong behavior, right? So, for example, if you go, let's pull out, um, let's pull out lead time to change, right? And then we'll just have change failure rate, we'll just have deployment fixing, we'll just have um, mean time to detect. Well, then what that means is that then in order to gamify having a low change failure rate, in order to gamify having a sort of mean time detect, you're going to take a really long time to deliver those user stories, right? Because your lead time to change, you don't have a, you don't have a constraint there. You can take as long as you need to, right? Yep. And then everything slows way down. So you can play that game out on any one of those four. And it, oh, you realize actually there's a nice balance there, right? So things like that are the steps we've taken early on to really get ourselves to a point where uh, we have the right balance of process and, you know, um, and, and go fast, right? And I think that's the key levers to pull when you think about evolving an organization. Early on in the days of a startup or sort of just earlier in the company, um, you know, the common axiom of like, go fast, break things, you know, don't let uh, perfect be the enemy of good, things like that. Those all are definitely still um, ideals to shoot for. But as you grow in an organization and as your um, scale and sort of um, trust and safety and sort of quality constraints start to grow, um, you know, as you, as you, for example, have partners who now have contractual SLAs with you and things like that, you should realize, oh, you actually have to kind of amp up the process and the, and the bureaucracy, to use a, a, a word, right, a little bit and lower down the whole, you know, go fast and break things. Not all the way, but you sort of change that balance, right? Um, you know, yep. people think about bureaucracy as a bad thing, um, but bureaucracy is not a bad thing. It's just, it's a thing. It's like, it's like tech debt. Tech debt's not bad. It's a choice you make, right? You need tech debt. Um, if you, if you, if you show me a team that has no tech debt, I'll take, I'll show you a team that didn't go fast enough, right? Or that, you know, that missed an opportunity. I think yeah. bureaucracy is the same thing where people go, Ooh, bureaucracy, I don't want that. Well, no, bureaucracy just means process, right? And you need process to structure things. And if you don't have some bureaucracy, then you're going to, you know, then you're going to make all kinds of mistakes and you're going to, um, you know, cause yeah. problems as you scale up, right? So 
too much proxy is bad, just like too much tech debt is bad, right? But it's the, it's the conscious choice that we make. Got you. How have you and the team dealt with the change of scale and change of technology, if you like, as the product has evolved over these yeah. last few years? Yeah, you know, it's funny. The change of technology is really interesting one because where we find ourselves these days is actually in a very, very much in a simplification mode, right? So we're actually doing more taking away than we're doing adding to our stack right now. Um, and, and you can kind of see organ like organically how that might have happened, where we had this airport business, um, and then you know, fast and furiously we grew this sort of new business off to the side. So it built on some of the same technology, but you might imagine all the ways in which you had to sort of like, you know use spit and tape to kind of hook a couple things together in a goofy way that worked, but like, cause you were going fast, but that's not the way you would have built it in the you know, perfect amount of time, obviously. Um, and then you have, what you have is a, is a functioning system that's secure, that's safe, that does everything you need to do, but gosh, it's complicated and gosh, it's kind of hard to maintain. And, and, and now things are a little bit slower to change so on and so forth. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that, that clear has been a really smart company in a bunch of different ways, primarily because um, we're doing the right things at the right times. And what my prior experience with in small and large companies has taught me is that that's one of the most common mistakes companies make is that whether it's a, a bureaucratic process or whether some tech debt you've, what, you've accumulated or whatever, there's a point at which there comes a time to resolve those things, right? You, you, put a, you take on some tech debt, maybe go down the road a little ways and go, okay, it's time to go back and pay off that tech debt now, right? Because it's causing us some problems. Um, where I see companies make mistakes all the time is you blow past that point. You go years past that point. And at some point you realize, oh gosh, we've painted ourselves into a corner. Now we have to put pencils down, forget whatever roadmap we have. We have to fix this now for the next six to 12 months, right? And then everything's going to grind to a halt, right? And so yeah. where I see Clear has made consistently really smart choices is every time we've reached a point where it's like, okay, it's time to pay off that tech debt or it's time to address that thing, we do it, right? Um, yeah. and, you know, and so that allows us to continually be in a position where, I'm, and I, Elliot, I'm not suggesting we have the perfect architecture or that we don't have plenty of tech that clean up or anything like that. For sure we do, right? But um, what I see us doing and I'm really happy about and I want to continue to drive forward is sort of making those timely choices in a way that doesn't stop us from moving quickly while still maintaining that scale and that safety, right? It's it, You notice when I, when I talk about things like evolving at scale, it's nothing about technology. It's nothing about, um, you, know, uh, you know, which cloud provider we used or what framework we used. It's yeah. always about process and people. I hear that so often, and I've heard here before, uh, your architecture reflects, you know, the communication inside the business. Yep. And I've always heard some of the biggest challenges around scalability are people, not necessarily the technology. And, yep. you know, that that's why I love learning around how different companies do different things. And I think the pragmatism there shown by you and the team to make the right decisions at the right time is really important. You know, it it could be quite easy to be really quite aggressive with sales or pushing the product into more domains, but ensuring that you stick to the DNA of the business and DNA is trust and safety, and ensuring that you've got a really good product that works, it feels like it's quite critical. Hundred percent, and, and you know, listen I'll, again. I'll, I'll kind of say like we're not perfect at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Like nail everything on time. Uh, but you know, one of the things I, I really, um, I really benefit from at Clear is you mentioned sales teams, our product teams, right? They get it. Our operations teams are really awesome. Like they all get it. They get technology. They get that um, you know, it's it, while we need to move fast, and there are business needs and so on and so forth. Um, there are times and places where we need to move slowly. Where we need to sort of go back and pay off tech debt. Where we need to take time to do the right thing 
in order to go forward faster later, right? Um, so often I've worked with partners who don't get that, right? Yeah. And then you have to, and then you, you can, you know, you, you, you beg and borrow for the time, you sort of, you know, you plead for the capacity, so on and so forth. Um, I don't really have to do that at Clear, which is fantastic. It's it's all very well balanced um, and and serves both the needs of the members and the business and sort of, you know, creates the, the environment we want for engineers as well, which I'm super happy about. Um, again, like I said, it's, it's it's a dream job and a dream company to work for because uh, I, I work with partners every day that, that get what we need to do. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, one thing that we've really touched on more recently, to be fair, on the podcast, but compliance and regulation. Mm, yeah. It, it would be interesting to touch on that and what you have to adhere to uh, as a technology company, you know, having having access to people's data, people's biometrics, you know, across yeah. the US. Like, what what do you have to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, and, and I've worked in a number of different regulatory environments over my career, luckily. So, um, you know, I think that makes me ideally suited for this opportunity. Um, and it really comes down to, um, again, some, some kind of unsexy things in, in, in concepts. So for example, yeah. auditability, a big important of, of working in a regulated environment is being auditable, right? Uh, meaning that you, that auditors in, in our case, PSA, maybe in prior roles at banks, it would be the OCC or the SEC in the U S um, that auditors are going to come from time to time and make sure that you're following their, you know, you're complying with the regulations you're supposed to comply with, right? In order to do that, they're coming, going to come inspect code, they're going to inspect process, they're going to inspect a bunch of different things, and you have to provide evidence, right? You have to provide evidence in the form of logs and, and data and screenshots and demonstrations, right, that show here's how we're complying, here's how we have controls around these things, here's how if, you know, we allow somebody to do something in our system, they can't then abuse that in some way or, or be corrupted in some way, so on and so forth, right? Uh, all these different controls have to be in place. And so auditability um, then sort of gets back to, okay, how do we architect our system? So this is where then it starts to get interesting, more technical, right? It's like, okay, so now that means when you build a new application or feature, you have to think ahead of time about how this is going to be audited or, or reviewed later on and how you have to sort of build controls in, right? Um, and so we think about that at every step of the way. Now, that's just thinking about sort of compliance in general, right? Then if we talk more, zoom in more specifically, oftentimes the question we get asked or I get asked a lot about Clear is, why are you guys allowed to operate in the airports? Like, what is it about you? Like, why isn't some other company? Why do we only see Clear, right? Um, and the answer is actually, we're not the only ones allowed to operate in the airport. Anybody can come in and um, comply with the registered traveler program in the U.S. if they want to. Now, it's a very onerous and, and highly secure, highly regulated um, program. And so um, that I think represents a really interesting competitive advantage for Clear because it's a, it's a challenging one for sure, but one that we're up to the task for. Um, and so that, um, that involves uh, kind of what I said, but also it involves a much more um, heavily physical component as well. Obviously we have people and, and physical devices in airports, in security checkpoints, right? And so those have to be inspected as well. Um, we work very, very closely with our partners with the TSA who are great. Um, and, uh, you know, that allows us to operate in the airports that way. Now, putting that aside, there's also other regulatory compliance we have in the U.S., um, such as what are called BIPA laws, right? So Biometric um, Identification Privacy Acts. Um, there are a number of states um, in the U.S. that have these BIPA laws on file. And what that says is that you must be able to provide um, the ability for um, people to consent to having a biometric stored and securely in some way, shape, or form, and most importantly, to purge them in any, in any requests, right? So um, in places where we collect biometrics in those states, or but really this is sort of our policy across the board, um, 
if you a member say, hey, I don't want you to have my my iris scan anymore, my face scan anymore, um, then we're required by law and we immediately then then delete those um, and get rid of them, right? And so that's another aspect of compliance. And lastly, I, I mentioned um, healthcare, right? So healthcare has its own set of compliance in the US with the HIPAA laws, right? So that then sort of, again, requires us to store things in a certain way to manage certain kinds of um, what's called EPHI or, or electronic uh, private healthcare information um, in, a, in a secure way as well. Um, thankfully, because we have those other compliance practices already in place, HIPAA compliance is actually just a, a pretty easy incremental step for us. But, um, you know, what that all implies, LA, and this is a shout out to my security and compliance partners um, at, at Clear, um, is as a ton of management and expertise yeah. in how you get through those compliance and, and making sure, right? Because the, the last thing I'll say about compliance before I show up, and I know it's not a very sexy topic, but the last thing I'll say about compliance is that a lot of it's kind of interpretation, right? There are laws and there's sort of guidelines written, um, but sometimes like any law, um, you can take it one way or the other way. And it's very much working with the regulators to understand what they expect out of you and then having a very robust answer to that, right? So oftentimes compliance means not just meeting the letter of the, of the compliance, but sort of going above and beyond to assure that um, you're, you're compliant no matter how you might interpret that, that regulation. Yeah, compliance is always complex, but I love the idea that you have to use some of that foresight, especially when you're building some of that technology to anticipate some of the challenges that you might foresee, not just, you know, a month, two month, whether, you know, that app's gone and gone and been deployed, yep. whatever it might be, but, you know, in probably years to come and allow for seamless changes as well, because compliance and regulation does change. Laws do change. Yep. You need to be able to plug things in or pull things out. So, yeah, and, and just to connect the dot for your listeners there, um, yeah. that smells very much like a data problem, right? right? Okay. If you talk about like if you talk like like a data mesh or like sort of a data lake problem, it's the exact same set of constraints and issues, right? Got How you. do you evolve that data over time, um, knowing that here's some data we've collected and it needs to be sort of normalized and, and hygienic? Um, we may not use it now, but maybe a couple years from now, we're like, oh gosh, we're super happy we have that data because now we need it for something, right? Yeah. Um, Standing up a, a well-governed and hygienic data program smells very much like standing up a well-governed and hygienic compliance program. Got you. I'm with you. You mentioned that one of the two things of your previous mentor said to you, hiring the right people is important. Mm. As a shout out here on engineers, we're always trying to understand you know, the trajectory of the business so that people listening to the podcast, if there are peaks of interest. They know that you're hiring these positions on date of release. So help us understand a little bit more about how you're growing the team, if you are currently growing at the moment, and what that might look like for the next 12 months for the business. And you know, if there is product or business growth as well, it'd be good to understand that too. Absolutely. So there's a ton of growth, right? And I'm very pleased to be able to say that. And again, another reason why I'm really excited about Clear um, and why I came here is that it's such a smartly well-managed business that we find ourselves in a position where a lot of other tech companies are laying off or, or freezing hiring or sort of tightening belts. We're growing, we're, we're hiring, we're, um, we're building. Um, so it's a great position to be in. And we're hiring roles at all levels um, and at all functions. I need mobile developers, I need front-end developers, I need back-end Java developers, I need data engineers. I need security uh, folks. I need infrastructure folks. Um, I'm hiring in New York um, and Austin in the U.S. Uh, we're an in-office culture, right? So we do hybrid. We do you know, flexible days. But uh, generally speaking, I want people to be in the office uh, more days than not. Um, we also have a phase of fantastic teams in uh, Haifa, Israel, and in Rosario, Argentina, where we're hiring as well. Um, and so 
you know, one of the things I first did when I came on board was um, evolve that hiring process. Um, you know, it's some, again, it's, it's, it's very common as a startup sort of transitioning to that bigger company scale. Um, you know, one of the ways you start off when you're a smaller company is you just kind of be doing kind of ad hoc hiring. Maybe you, you have a sort of a, an aligned culture in terms of like what you kind of the, the profile you're looking for and the kind of technology you're using. But, you know, mostly each team is kind of left to their own devices. Okay, is so the vacancy in your team or a new role in your team? Great, that team kind of goes about hiring their, their person and that's it, right? Yeah. The problem with that is at scale is you end up with a couple of things. First of all, you end up with sort of divergent hiring practices. Um, and that kind of leads to potentially divergent hiring quality. Um, but mm -hmm. more importantly, it also leads to a divergent profile, right? And so as a company grows and scales, one of the hallmarks I think of a healthy engineering culture is the ability for an engineer to move from a team to another team, yep. whether because of a, of, a, of a need for the business or from a growth opportunity. I want to try a new skill set or I want to work in another area of the business and so on and so forth, right? But if you yep. hire an engineer only for that team, the chances of them being um, supplantable into a dumber team are lower, not impossible, but lower, right? And so one that, what that meant for us was an evolution to sort of more of a, a sort of more modern sort of pipeline process where we're hiring for a role for the company. And, and then we have a set of interviewers um, that are trained sort of across teams, right? So you're not hiring for specific, you're hiring for clear, right? And um, then based on, on the outcome of that process, we'll then look at, okay, what are the skills of this person? What experience level do we think they are? And what need do we have? And then we can try to fit them into teams and give the candidates some options that are really interesting to them. Um, and so that's one of the evolutions we've done. I'm super happy about that. And, and, and the outcome of that so far has been a really great um, ramp up in our hiring capability. I, I would suggest to you that um, not necessarily in terms of quality, because um, I would like to say that we've always had the quality bar really high. Um, the problem is efficiency at scale, right? So as you grow um, and you don't have that pipeline process and that sort of consistency in place, then each team has to sort of go through their, their own backflips to figure out the right quality bar, right? So what that gives us is not just a high quality bar, which I think we already had, but it gives us a high quality bar with efficiency, right? So we're able to sort yeah. of hire at that level more consistently and more predictably. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. And uh, if you are in the New York, Austin, Haifa or Rosario areas and you're looking for a role, please let me know. There'll be a link below as well so that people can go and follow this chain and go and apply directly themselves. I think the unification and, and what you're saying, going back to your points, uh, being uniform across a technology org, uh, I think is really key, whether it be calibration, whether it be processes, efficiencies. I think it's super important to make a really well-oiled function. and people forget just how important hiring is for the growth of the business to be able to actually go and supplement some of that vision, some of that mission that everyone's striving for. So getting it right on a day-to-day -day basis is super, super critical. And I think leaders should be looking at that, you know, as one of their, you know, top three in what they should put right. in their role. Quite right. I always tell my team the only thing more important than an interview or a hiring process is going to be like a you know an incident introduction, like a P one incident. That's the only excuse you have to not be focusing on interviewing um, because that hiring is so important. And it's and it's honestly it's not even necessarily the technical aspect of the hiring that that important. I mean that is important. There's a bar that has to be passed, obviously, right? Even though it's yeah. code, right? Um, but but here's the deal. It's what I tell my team all the time. If I need you to know Java and you don't know Java, but you're otherwise a solid engineer. I can teach you Java. That's no problem, yeah. right? I can't teach you how to want to work with other people. Yeah. I can't teach you how to have a curiosity and growth mindset. 
I can't teach you how to be resilient and, you know, and to continue to ask questions and to figure the problems out. Right. So those are the qualities I want to interview for. Right. And those yeah. are the things that make a fit for a great engineering culture. And then if you fit all those things and then I need you to know some technology or some framework that you don't know, great. I'll just teach you. Cause again, teaching you should be another part of a great engineering culture that you fit in. Right. Yeah. Well, you did the VB thing as well, didn't you? On your weekends. That's <laughs> probably one of the smartest that's probably one of the smartest things I've heard, in fairness. Commit uh, to it, a... then find yeah, a yeah. book, then go and learn it. So I will credit uh Sir Richard Branson with that so that methodology, right? You know, he always said, you know, say yes and figure it out later. I, I, yeah. I, that, that resonates strongly with me, but not a path I would recommend recommend for everybody, Elliot, but it did work out. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Nick, listen, I want to say a massive thanks for coming to join us it's been awesome you've obviously helped us kick off our u.s series and we're going to be talking to more businesses across the u.s uh, but it's going to be pretty awesome to see what you guys and girls continue to go and do and just the level of impact that you're no doubt going to have and it feels like it's really exciting times i can hear and feel that from you um so good luck. thank you so much thank you so much i really had a good time yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And, and for everyone listening, there's lots of growth going on. Check these guys and girls out and like, share, subscribe, and show all your friends over in the US. And thanks and bye for now. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.